Guys, good morning. Good to see you. Last week, we had over 100 questions come streaming in. And what we're going to be doing today is batting cleanup on some of those questions we just didn't have time to get to. But I want to let you know that live texting is open again today as well. For the uninitiated, we are now in the midst of something we call questions you never thought you could ask in church. And here's how it works. We invite you to text in any questions you might have on God, Christianity, the Bible, fellowship of faith, the intersection of all of this with life to this number right here. And I am going to get them in uh, real time, anonymously. And I am just going to do the best I can to try to answer them here right on the spot. So let's jump in. we got a lot to hit, and what I want to start is with a little bit of cleanup from last Sunday. Now, someone had asked last Sunday this just amazingly deep and profound question. Will there be tacos in heaven? Please respond. To which I answered last Sunday... No, there won't be tacos in heaven. You are a spirit or a soul in heaven without digestive tract. You do not eat in heaven. Really, guys, come on. But at the resurrection of the dead, you better believe it. All right? Now, it was followed up. It was followed up, and I apologize, and I just didn't have time to get to it, with a similar question. Will there be tacos in hell? Yeah. Yeah, right? (laughs) I'm sure you are. (laughs) There will be tacos in hell. It's called Taco Bell. (laughs) Moving on. (laughs) Now, someone texted in this. Does the creation story in Genesis... When God made all the animals, make a good case for the chicken coming first and not the egg. Yes, unequivocally, yes, the chicken came first, not the egg. God did not say on the sixth day, and let there be eggs. He said, let there be chickens, all right? And they've been with us ever since. Any tips for following Jesus' command to love thy neighbor in today's negative, rude, and selfish environment. And related, I know the Bible says to love others. There are so many people loving is not just words. How do we love without getting exhausted? I think we get the sense of what this person is asking. I got to be straight up. The way I've had to approach the first one is Christ, please come again. It really is. (laughs) It can be an agony and test of utter endurance, can't it, to love thy neighbor, especially when you don't like them? But this is what the mantle and call is of being a Christian, and it seems like you know that well. You know, I'm going to answer this in kind of a related way, and it's Jesus' command to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I have always been one that has been struck deeply by God's call for us to forgive those who offend us. And sometimes those people who have hurt us can be the hardest to love, can't they? In fact, I have found often I want to forgive people who have hurt me because I want to be free of them. But more and more, I've been wrestling with the unforgiveness that rests in my own life and wondering if that is actually, in fact, a burden from God 
to not cut that person loose, but to pray for them. Because if I'm emotionally free from you, I sure ain't praying for you. I sure ain't praying for I sure ain't praying for you. I got it out there. It's been a long morning, guys, all right? Pray for them. Force yourself to. Force yourself daily, if you need to, to pray for the people that fuck you, that rub you the wrong way. And I don't mean God give them boils, you, you know? <laughs> I mean, pray for them the way Jesus would want you to pray for them. And sometimes it means this, God, I hate them. You know, I can't stand them. I don't want to pray for them, but I know you're calling me here to today, so Lord, And know that God can take groans that words cannot express and do something with it. Love is an action. Practice it, even if you don't feel it. Great question. How about this? If God is good, kind, loving, we get the idea, and also powerful, then why does he allow so many terrible things to happen. It's a proverbial question that, that theologians and philosophers have wrestled with for thousands of years. And the best answer I can give you in the time allotted today to it is this. As cliche as it sounds, God respects the freedom of others. God often does not force. God does not coerce. And that means people are allowed to not only do but suffer at the hands of the consequences of those who freely choose to do evil things. Now I'm scratching the surface, and I know it. And if this is wrestling with you in a deep and profound way, come talk to me afterwards, and we can get into some of the particulars that you might be up against. But from the 20,000-foot elevation, I think I'm just going to leave it there today. Let me hit one more from last week. Is Neil a babe or what? Yeah. Now, last Sunday, Neil Overbear, communications director here at Fellowship of Faith, stood on this stage and led us in worship to God, and this text came in. Is Neil a babe or what? So we actually met as a staff to discuss <laughs> if we believe Neil was a babe or what. And we thought it best to bring it to a straw poll here this morning. So we want to determine if Neil is a babe, or as his dad just shouted out, or what. If you believe Neil is a babe, raise your hands loud and proud, all right? All right. If you believe Neil is a what, now is your time. I think by gauging the room, we can fairly say Neil is in fact a babe. Give it up for Neil, all right? Hottest man I ever met, all right? <laughs> and because that's so weird to leave on, I've got to do one more from last week. How do you respond to someone who doesn't think the Bible is the inerrant word of God? You don't try to convince them that it is. The Bible can speak for itself. The truth of the Bible can be seen for itself and come out for itself for people who are willing to give the time and the openness of mind to consider it. Rather than try to get people to believe that, 
Help them see what the Bible says. And if they're open to it, God will work in that to convict them with the truth that comes oozing out of the pages. The truth that it truly is. Yeah, leave it to God on that. You'd be surprised what he does. Let me hit some of the live ones that have come in. All right. Let me refresh. Okay, related. Does the Lutheran Church believe the Bible is infallible? Yes, it does. I just want to uh, challenge back, though, that um, you might not think, you might not know what the word infallibility means. A lot of people use the word infallibility to refer to inerrancy, meaning without error. That is not what infallibility means. What it means to say the Bible is infallible is to say that it will not fail. That the Bible is more than just words on the page, but that it is a way and a stream that God swims in. That God is not only trying to convey information, but do something by it. And what God intends to do through the Bible will actually come to pass and not fail. Yes, yes, the Lutheran Church does believe that the Bible is the infallible word of God. How about this? If extraterrestrials do exist and God loves them as much as he loves everyone, would they have their own Jesus story of salvation? No, because Jesus did not just die for the human race. Jesus died for the world. And when we say Jesus died for the world, that shouldn't be equated to think of earth. World is a translation of the Greek word cosmos, and I think you can hear in the Greek word cosmos just, in fact, the extent in scope of what it means when we say Jesus died for the cosmos. This planet and all life that inhabits it, including human beings, but including everything out there, and I encourage you to go swim in Romans chapter 8 or maybe Ephesians to th see how Jesus is lifted up as this ruler of not just humanity, but ruler of the universe itself. All right. From the 9 o'clock service, this meme, and I didn't get the meme, but I will look at the link later on, is in response to your answer to the question about your age. All right, someone at uh, 9 o'clock asked me how old I was. And what I shared with 9 o'clock is people are always surprised when I answer this way. I'm 58. And I think I look absolutely smashing for my age. How do you reconcile the many realms, infinite universes theory with Christianity? You familiar with this? Universe versus multiverse? I'll put it this way. I don't try to because, of course, remember, the multiverse is a theory, and it may be correct. It may not be. The universe, likewise, is a theory, even though we've come to talk that way so comfortably, which may be correct or maybe not. What I know is this. God in heaven, Yahweh, as the Bible puts him, is not just Lord and creator of the universe, but if it should exist, the creator of the multiverse. So the multiverse does not trump Yahweh. Yahweh, if he is Yahweh, trumps the multiverse and would in fact be Lord of all. And Jesus would be savior, not only of the cosmos, but the multi-cosmos, if I could put it. 
that way. Let's go to a few more from last week. How does Jesus dying on the cross save us? I am going to answer this in a surprising way. Believe it or not, the Gospels don't answer the question. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John do not explicitly answer how Jesus dying on the cross saves us. They just say it does. They just say it does and build their stories to the climax of showing that it does. Now, Paul and other writers will play out different ideas, and this is called atonement theory of how that works. And I tell you, there isn't just one answer. There's a lot. And the answers are congruent. And you see through the study of how Jesus dying on the cross saving us, how it works in so many multifaceted kinds of ways. I will leave you with one, just one today, that sin deserves death, that the wages of sin is death, that we die and this universe decays because we are getting exactly what we deserve in our defiance, rebellions, and moving away from God. Because God, of course, is the source of life. And Jesus dying on the cross satisfies that debt. Just one way. I struggle with the wrath of God in Scripture. I view God the Father as a loving Father, and I am glad that you do. Because above all things, what you see in the Bible in terms of attributes and descriptions and stories of God is that he loves. And that, believe it or not, is why he gets angry. Because people who love someone get angry when bad people come and do things to them that they shouldn't. I want to submit to you that you don't want an impartial God. You don't want an emotionally detached God you want a God that gets angry. Do you get angry? Think about it. And take three. Do you think Christians can or should listen to secular music? Well, of course they can. I mean, I'm sure you have, so that, that proves that question off the bat, but I'm going to answer the last half of this question very literally. Should you? No. No, there's no command that you should. You don't have a moral obligation to listen to secular music. God does not command you to listen to secular music. God does not say, if you're going to follow me, no, you, there's no should, but maybe you want to. Okay, cool. If it doesn't lead you astray, if it doesn't corrupt you, if it doesn't get in the way, then embrace it as a gift of God. Can I do one more, though? Can I challenge this sacred, secular divide what actually is secular music? 
And if someone mentions God or Jesus, does that automatically make it sacred? I would encourage you to do this. Listen to good music and avoid bad music. Listen to good music regardless of the artificial stamps people want to designate it by. How about this? The Bible mentions homosexuality, but does it talk about things like gender dysphoria or transgenderism? You know, the closest that you are going to get on gender dysphoria is a command that you can find rooted in Deuteronomy where it says men shouldn't dress like women and women shouldn't dress like men. Without explanation or reason why. But I want to step back and talk about identity in general for just a moment. Because regardless of gender, regardless of nationality, regardless of race, regardless of economic background, religious upbringing, or sexual orientation or confusion, if I can put it that way, Christians find new identity regardless. Identity is children of God. Identity is children of Abraham. And what God invites us to do when we come to him, first and foremost, is not address our question of identity primarily on ideas of race or sexuality or nationality or denominational affiliation or... But on our connection and identity we find in him. Here's another. What is the purpose or calling of a Christ follower? How do I know if I'm in it? Let me take these in part. What is the purpose or calling of a Christ follower? This is one where I absolutely love how the Westminster Confession puts it. To love God and enjoy him forever. To do his will to seek his commands, to be in everlasting relationship with him and all that that outplays in the course of your life. Now, we can get so much more specific in this as well of what that looks like in specific ways. To love this world, to redeem this world, to restore this world, to be God's agents in this world, to be his ambassadors, to be the ones who bring his goodness in life to light. And I can go on and on and on with what that looks like. But how do you know if you're in it? The Bible will talk about a number of ways to identify, let's kind of put it this way, the signs if you're in him. And more prevalent than any sign, more foundational more at the root, and, 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 and I would argue lowest common denominator is this, faith. Faith is the sign that you're in him. Do you trust him? Do you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Do you call out on Jesus as Lord? Does that lead you to repent? Do you believe the good news? I can put this 10 different ways, but faith becomes the sign that you're in him. There's another question coming on that that I'm going to get to a little bit later. Let me go to a little bit more live texting. How about this? Are all sins equal in God's eyes? No, 
I don't believe they are. But all sin separates from God, and all sin is damnable. So don't ever make the mistake of thinking there are sins that don't really matter. How about this? Let me work through this one out loud. Why doesn't Christian worship music dash meaning that which we play on an average Sunday lament? It is a lamentable reality that more Christian music doesn't. One of the unfortunate trends, not only of the modern contemporary Christian music industry, but also of much of the great hymnody, is that very little is resonant of the songs of lament, the crying and outbroken hearts of God's people before him. I encourage you, if you're a musician or a composer, to start rectifying that because the body of Christ needs deep spiritual laments. The follow-up is I found myself listening to more and more lamentful, quote, secular music because it often feels more honest than typical worship music, and I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more, and I'm with you, and I think you're stumbling onto the fact that there is good music and bad music, deep music and shallow music, and there is a place for deep and shallow in this world. But unfortunately, way too much Christian music has chosen to swim in the kiddie pool for way too long. How about this? Do you speak for God? Yeah. Yeah, I do. And you do too if you're in Christ. And don't you shirk that for one moment. God has called you to speak for him. And I will tell you this, even if you are in Christ and keep your lips buttoned, your life still speaks for him. So you better make sure what you're saying is true because all of us will answer to him for how we have spoken, misspoken, or left unspoken the calling we have in his name. Let's go to some more from last week. Is it true that Muslims accept the Old Testament? Yes. How do they treat God the Father? It depends on what Muslims you're talking about. Never think of any religion, any denomination, or any local church as being monolithic as though all people think and feel the same way. But embedded within Muslim tenet is a high reverence and high respect and high regard for God the Father, seeing him both in his glory and many other attributes that the other Judaic religions, both Judaism and Christianity, would share as well. How literally is the Bible to be taken? Did Jonah really sit in a whale belly? Well, it's funny, this question to me, because what it means to take something literally, or what it should mean, is to take it along the lines which it always intended to be taken. Jesus once calls Herod a fox. 
Does that mean Jesus thought that Herod had four legs and a bushy tail? (laughs) To insist that it is, is not to take that literally. It's just to read it badly. To take it literally is to understand it as the metaphor for which it is. And I chuckled a little bit on this because it seems that the person who texted, and, and I'm glad you did, I'm glad you did, would understand taking Jonah sitting in a whale belly as, as being literal, but the literature never says there was a whale. So to say he sat in a whale's belly would actually be an unliteral reading. And you can kind of just be confused and cheering on that for a little while. Is all, the sa- is all sin the same in God's eyes? Hitler and the common thief. We hit this one already. I think you maybe just texted him again today. Does the Garden of Eden still exist on earth? No, it does not. What is your view on the Catholic practice of praying to the Virgin Mary to speak to Jesus for them? I think it misses the point. I don't think we need to go to Jesus' mom to butter him up to get him on our side. I think what Jesus invites us to do and what the scriptures declare is that we are to pray to him, him alone, the Trinity alone, and him directly. And that it is actually an irreverent move to pray to someone else other than him. How about this? The changing moral code in the Bible confuses me. How do we go from Jacob having 12 sons from four different women to no sex before marriage monogamy? Related. As the laws of the Bible, or are the laws of the Bible in the Old Testament supposed to be used as guidelines? For example, do not eat pork because in the time of the Bible it could be disease-ridden and parasite-filled. I think we're getting the sense of How does the moral code change and what do I do with the Old Testament law? Remember that just because a story is in the Bible, it is not being offered to you as an example to follow. The Bible is not a textbook on morality. And while it speaks heavily into morality and what it can and should look like, that doesn't mean that's the Bible's purpose. So it is filled with the stories of immoral people, which means you're going to come across stories all the time of people like Jacob having 12 different sons from four different women and doing a lot of things a lot worse than that. And there's no, well, so what would Jacob do with this kind of thing, right? That's a misread, so don't do that. But you do see throughout the Bible a growing morality, a shaping morality. And that isn't to say it isn't there in the beginning. But what you see is a progressing revelation of God making things clear or God moving from things he tolerated to things he addresses. And I can put this other ways as well through the Bible as well. Where does that leave you with the Old Testament law? Well, if you're a Christian, it leaves you here. You're not under it. You have been freed from the law. Why did God give that law? Because he gave it to those people in that time and place to follow, forgive the word, literally. Why? Lots of reasons. And the whole disease parasite thing on the pork has been one suggested. 
but I think there are many other explanations that are probably better than that one. Hopefully that helps a little bit. And if you're interested in this, come see me afterwards, and I will give you a short paper I did on this that I think can guide you through it. Okay? All right. Is the beard temporary or permanent? Asking for a friend. <laughs> Tina. <laughs> Tina informed me it's temporary. It's temporary. How about this? What happens to a child who does not have the mental capacity to know about the crucifixion or that Jesus died to save our sins after he or she dies? Will they go to heaven or hell? Is there a sin that God won't forgive? Two separate questions put last week that I wanted to put together today for one combined answer. Is there a sin that God won't forgive? Yes. And Jesus speaks very specifically to it. He words it as blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Now this, of course, raises questions. What does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? And I encourage you to just get into the express lane with me and let's jump to the end of the road. It would seem to me after a lifetime of my own wrestling and study with this, that blaspheming the Holy Spirit comes down to some kind of way of rejecting the transformative power of the Holy Spirit in your life who is responsible for bringing you to repentance and saving faith. We cannot believe in Christ by our own reason and strength. It is God's Spirit that comes to us, takes a hold of us, and melts our hearts and turns us towards Him. But to reject the Spirit in our life, and more than reject, to blaspheme His work, to count it off, to throw it away, to, to visibly stand before it and spit in the face of God's Spirit's life will mean that your heart will harden of its own accord and you you will find yourself in unrepentance and disbelief. Which is why it is so important that we remain sensitive to the conviction and prodding and nudging of God's Spirit in our life. Now what about the child who dies? What about the child who dies, understanding that all sins can be forgiven, that grace increases where sin increases, so God's grace is always a trump card to every other sin? What happens is they stay in God's hands just like they've always been. We entrust them to God. We entrust them to God and his goodness and his mercy and the atoning death of Jesus who died for the sins of the world, not just the sins of believers. And leave to God the details and the hope and confidence that however much our fears are there, God's love for that child is infinitely more than ours is. Leaving it to him. Will there be a new heaven after the resurrection. Why will we need a new heaven at all then? Yes, there will be a new heaven. John, the follower of Jesus, speaks at the second coming of not only a new earth, but a new heaven and new earth, because earth and heaven were never meant to be separated. Heaven is where God is, and God desired to be among his people. 
the tearing apart or the artificial separation of heaven and earth as it exists today was not God's design. It is a result of sin. And so when God comes back to renew all things, it is to renew the separation and fissure and make it whole and new again. Hopefully that helps. Let's do one more from last week. Why don't I feel God's presence in my life? I pray. I believe. I have faith. And I try to turn toward him. But I don't feel like he is with me. And I don't feel like I am doing this Christianity thing right. Now, brother or sister, if you're out there and you're here today after texting in this last week, I am so with you. I get it. I know what you mean, and I say it personally. I'm a lot like you. I know what it feels like to not feel God there. And I know the anguish and the fear and the doubt that that often brings. I know what it's like to try to turn him. I get where you're coming from. And what I've learned is this is why it is so important to put our faith in external things and not in external and in, in internal things. Too many Christians have faith in faith instead of having faith in Jesus. Our faith does not rest and rely on what we feel or what's going on inside. It might be there. It might not be. It's hard, and I get it, but I have learned in those times when it doesn't feel like it's there, that doesn't mean it's not there and he's not there. He made a promise that is true outside of me, no matter what I feel and it's in those times of not feeling his presence that I found it all the more important to hang my head on that, to grab hold of that, to say, you know what? The devil can confront me to my face and tell me I'm going to hell, and he's probably right because I probably should, but Jesus said he died for me, so I hold that. You know what? I feel like I'm alone. I feel like I'm abandoned. I feel like I'm in the one set of footprints in the sand. But he's made a promise that he's always with me, that I will be with you to the end of the age. So you know what? Screw how I feel. And I mean it. Screw it. Hold on to that. Because it's faith in that that makes all the difference. And I can guarantee you, you are not doing the Christianity thing right as much as I can promise anything, I can promise you that. Turn to your neighbor sitting next to you, right? It's the good news. Whether you're doing it right or not, he did it right. 
Anchor yourself in that. There are so many more questions, both in the queue and on the screen waiting for me today. And if I didn't get to your question today, I have good news for you. Questions you never thought you could ask in church continues next Sunday. And we're going to begin by getting to those that still remained unanswered today. So we encourage you. If I'm speaking to you, come out next week and let's dig in and bring your phones again because we anticipate opening live text in again. As we end this time together today, we're, we're going to come and we're going to commune. And one thing I like about communion is that it's external. I might not come to this feeling anything. I might come to this knowing I'm not doing the Christian thing right. But whether I feel it or not, or whether I'm doing it right or not, this is a reminder to us that God did it right, something outside of us, and a way that God comes from out there to in here that we get to partake. So I'd like to invite you to rise. Band, if you'd like to make your way forward. The Bible encourages us to examine ourselves before we commune. And I want to invite you to do that today. Ask yourself, not if you're doing it right, but how you're not doing it right. And bring to him the struggles you have with not feeling it if they might be there. And let's just spend a moment here today and lay that before God, can we? Let's pray. Here are prayers, God, the prayers of the people, the groans that words cannot express, the confessions, the laments, the doubts, the sadness, the fears, the blasé, lukewarmness, dryness of soul, the misguided zeal, the misguided faith. Draw near God, we pray. Forgive. Renew and lead us in your way. And may we hold on to that, that you have accomplished that, have promised that, no matter what we feel today. Our Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples and he said, Take and eat. My body, given for you. He took a cup after supper. He gave thanks. He gave it to them. He said, Drink of this, all of you. This is my blood 
the blood of the new covenant shed for you for the forgiveness of all of your sins. Come, do this in remembrance of me.